You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Elsa Walsh, a journalist and an author, and I'm here with Bob Woodward to discuss his 50-year career at the Washington Post. Most of you know Bob as an investigative reporter and an author. I know him as my husband. And we're here with Bob in his um, slightly decluttered office uh, to talk to you today. And welcome, Bob. Thanks so much. This is going to be fun. So what I thought we would do is start the way we start most mornings, which is um, talking about what's in the news. And we'd like first to start with um, a very sad moment for the Washington Post family, which is the death of Fred Hyatt, the Washington Post mm -hmm. um, editorial page editor, who we both knew very well, almost as much as long as long as we've known each other. And tell us what your thoughts well, are. Well, I, I hired uh, I Fred Hyatt in uh, 1981, so that's 40 years ago. And he was working at the Star and the Star closed. And Ben Bradley said, OK, I was the Metro editor. You can hire six people from the Star, which was a, a big a opening at that <laughs> at point. And uh, so interviewed people and everyone said, uh, there's one person you have to hire, Fred Hyatt. And there was just no disagreement. It was, uh, this is the sober, uh, aggressive, uh, calm, decent reporter. And of course, Fred was the, you know, was the person. Uh, I mean, he never wanted to create a franchise for himself. No, and he, he remained that calm, gentle person. I, you know, ironically sat across from him when he first was hired at the Washington Post. And one of the things that struck me was just how unflappable he always was and that he always seemed to get his work done by six o'clock and get home, which is something that nobody else seemed to be able to do. So um, there's a lot of grief at the Washington Post. He was a much beloved person. His, his wife, Pooh, you also hired was a friend of ours and so we're sending sort of lots of big hugs and, and love and um, honor. And, and memories, I mean, what was most interesting about Fred Hyatt is he never did television. Yeah. He, he stayed away mm -hmm. and felt his job was for the last 20 years, 21 years to supervise the editorial page and bring on the clash of ideas. Yes, he did, he did that well. He he hired sort of the whole range of, of ideological thought, and you saw that every day in the Post. So the second thing that we'd most likely do this morning is um, we noticed that uh, President Biden was going to be speaking to uh, Putin of Russia to discuss the possible incursion at Ukraine. And what I would have done was I would have said, oh, Bob, you had, you know, your phone calls about between Putin and, and Biden in your book, and I would probably open them up and say, let's talk about that. Maybe you should do something about it. Yes. Uh, what uh, strikes me about that is that both Russia and the United States are advertising this call. They're marketing it before it happened. And uh, as we know, and this is the Biden modus operandi, which we uh, Robert Costa and I chart in peril, and that is that you do it behind the scenes, personal relations. And uh, so I'm a little surprised that we've gone into this marketing of, you know, because look, Biden knows, and I think lots of people know, and this is not just Washington, but it is everywhere. When you have the personal relationship, the bond of trust, either the Reagan, you know, trust but verify, that's fine. But when you get into what we're seeing now, I'm not sure how productive and, and it as you, is. As you say in the book, all Biden oftentimes says all diplomacy is personal. But what I love about those two phone calls that you describe in the book is, um, Putin being upset with an interview that that Biden had given with George Stephanopoulos. And what did he say to him? And, and uh, what, what Biden had said, well, Putin's a killer. Uh -huh. And 
Putin did not like that, wanted him almost to take it back. And then Biden said, well, let's meet, let's get together. And Putin was surprised. And but Biden so, also said, I didn't really mean it. That was sort of off the cuff. Right? Yeah, yeah. But but that was <laughs> yeah. the diplomacy. And and so, again, the, the whole theory of the case of working with Robert Costa or on 21 books is you go deep. You try to find out what happened generally after things have happened, after the first version is appeared in the newspaper. And that uh, leads you down a path of uh, much more, for myself, comfortable grounding in facts. So let's go back to the beginning. What a lot of people don't know is that um, your first foray into journalism resulted in kind of a spectacular failure. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, uh, no, that's absolutely true. You said uh, that could be hard. Uh, yeah, well, no, uh, but uh, that, that, that's fine because mm -hmm. what, what happened to me, graduated from college in 1965, had to go into the Navy because I'd signed up for Naval ROTC and I was extended for a year. So it, because of Vietnam, because of Vietnam and the specialty in communications I had. And uh, so I'm 27. I'm all set to go to law school. And I did the very simple calculation. Oh, let's see, I'll be 30 when I get out of law school. And if you remember when you were 30, uh, that's the end of life. <laughs> and so there's that sense of what I, I'm going to not do anything. So I and your dad, your dad had expected you to be a lawyer because he was a prominent lawyer in town outside of Chicago, Wheaton. Yeah, and was a judge and was uh, and I had expected myself to to go to law school and so forth. And so what I did is I walked down to the Washington Post, which was maybe 10 blocks from my apartment in D.C., and uh, walked in. And uh, this is a moment where there was no security. Anyone could go in. And I said, uh, gee, I'd uh, like to talk to some editor and found the Metropolitan Editor and said, I'd like to work here. And he looked at me and said, what's your experience? And I said, well, none. And he said, why are you interested? Well, I, I, I was in the world of the Navy, the regimen, the sense of you lose your life when you're in the service. I was on ships and lots of time at sea. And so I wanted to try this. And he said, well, it's just crazy enough. We'll let you try. And so I was given a two-week tryout. And I wrote a dozen stories, none of which they published. And uh, they collectively agreed uh, that I didn't know what I was doing. And Harry Rosenfeld, the Metropolitan Editor, said, you know, you know, good luck with your life. Uh, I hope you uh, find something to do, but you don't know how to do this. And I said, well, thank you. And he said, why, why did you say thank you. And I said, because I know this is what I want to do. You know, when you worked at the Post. The, in, we in, met in 1980. Yeah, in the newsroom. yeah yes, right. And it, it, there's that sense of immediacy. You're plugged into the moment, what people are talking about. And I, I, I jumped on this and, uh, uh, and he said, well, you know, that's kind of crazy, but he helped me get a job at a weekly paper in Maryland where I worked for a year and did some stories that they wished they'd had. And uh, they hired me. And I So out of that failure came both um, knowledge of what you wanted to do and a love of journalism and um, eventually, quite quickly, actually, at the Washington Post. Yes, and what what was interesting is, so I was there nine months, and there was a burglary at the, the Watergate, the Democratic National Committee, and was on a beautiful Saturday morning, and the editors sat around and, and thought, 
well, wait a minute, uh, who will be dumb enough to come <laughs> in today? And uh, they immediately thought of me and sent me to the courthouse. And uh, there was a group that did that first story. But what happened the next day, Sunday, two reporters came in to do a follow. And one was Carl Bernstein and one was myself. And there and that was, was so really the beginning of your knowing Carl. Right? Yes. Yeah. And, and working with him and and seeing his energy and curiosity and uh, uh, drive. And so, you know, then we worked on that story for uh, two years. And well, you did... always say that um, Carl was your second great teacher after the editor at the small Montgomery County paper. Yeah, Roger Farquhar. Were... That, that's right. I mean, what Carl was, I, I remember during this period, I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's exactly what happened. Uh, a couple of months after the Watergate burglary, we, Carl and I had done, you know, we were fishing around and I went on vacation. I was in Michigan and my stepmother called down, Bob, I was at the beach. There's a Carl Bernstein on the phone and I, picked up the phone and uh, he said, you know, what the hell are you doing? You know, there, there's a story here. We've got uh, an opportunity. There are lots of unanswered questions. And uh, so his exuberance and skill was um, something uh, I admired and hopefully learned and, from. And uh, Carl continues to call at all sorts of hours and all sorts of places. Whenever we get a call here after 10 o'clock, we say it's either our daughter or Carl. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so um, a lot of people know the sort of the parameters of, of, of Watergate and the, you know, your, your source there, um, Deep Throat. Um, let's talk about him yes. for a while. Sure. Um, you kept that secret for a very long time, um, but shortly after we met, you told me who it was and you hadn't told you told two other people why'd you do that yeah and, and um we were dating and uh, you know we were and uh, certainly i was in love with you <laughs> and uh the uh we were out to dinner and you asked and uh i said it was mark felt and uh, you were, yes, the third person to know that, and uh, Bradley and Carl Bernstein. And um, I told you because you asked and because... First question, first rule of journalism, ask. <laughs> yeah, and uh, to, to be uh, mm -hmm. very direct, uh, and we, you and I have talked about this in mm -hmm. our, you know, our 30 plus years of marriage, uh, love is about trust. And I trusted you. Thank you. And uh, you, I told it, it was the most natural thing. And there, you can't wall yourself off in a relationship. We all have our private lives, but you've got to kind of bulldoze down the walls that you normally have with people. Uh, and um, so it, it was, I don't think you thought it was unusual that I told you, did you? I, I, um, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was a little unusual. I think I was asking, not fully expecting an answer, but I knew that once you told me hmm. that one, um, it meant something very important in our relationship and that you were trusting me with something that was of utmost significance to you. And um, I felt sort of honored and duty bound to also keep that secret until um, Mark Felt was later identified as Deep Throat by his lawyer. Yes, uh, or uh, by Felt himself, yes. actually yeah. 30 years, years later, later. Yes. Uh, uh, a long, long time. But uh, that secret was important to me and to the Washington Post, yes. because we said uh, we're going to keep our word in protecting sources. And in this case, and in 
literally hundreds of cases we've done that. So that's kind of bedrock in so, so journalism. So tell us about Mark Felt. Tell us about how you met him, because it's there's a, a pattern here in your life and in journalism. Well, I was working for the chief of naval operations, uh, doing communications, uh, boring work in the Pentagon, but uh, Admiral Moore wanted somebody to take secret documents, top secret documents to the White House. And uh, he so gave them to me and said, take these to the White House. And on one trip, I was sitting there on in chairs outside Henry Kissinger's office or the offices of the National Security Council. And there was this white haired man in a white shirt, which was unusual at that time. And I introduced myself as Lieutenant Woodward and he said, I'm Mark Felt, uh, and what do you do? And he was a high FBI official then. And so we're kind of two lost souls sitting there waiting for somebody in the NSC or Henry Kissinger or Al Haig to uh, summon us. And uh, so I asked about him. He was a lawyer and what he had done and got his phone number. And later when Carl and I were working on the Watergate story, he's one of the people I called and he, he was very worried about security. And so set up this mechanism, uh, improbable as it sounded, but not to me at the time. I thought, okay, this is normal. You meet FBI people in an underground garage. Yes, and so um, later when um, Mark Felt revealed who he, who he was and you ended up writing a, actually a book about your relationship with him and uh, describing how in fact, it had started back there in the naval years and then sort of proceeded. But he wasn't very happy for a while about, for a long time about being called Deep Throat, right? Yes, because it's also a name for a pornographic movie. <laughs> the Deep Throat was a name given to the source by Howard Simons, who was number two to right. Ben Bradley in the Washington Post. And uh, the name just kind of it is there and uh he didn't like it because it, it's most well known as a pornographic movie and you know hey hey dad how come you're named after a pornographic movie mm -hmm. so um well he didn't tell his kids right no he didn't his, I, uh, his you know, daughter he did. sort of figured it out much later right yes much later and on a time uh, where i visited mark felt and so it's it's the it, it was a great lesson I hope I learned, and that is you need to listen to everyone, take everyone's phone number. Nothing is out of bounds. There are no possibilities that an encounter with somebody does not have, and and that's very liberating in journalism and at the Washington Post, because uh, uh, as you know, the, the, there's a sense of independence, a sense of running room. I always uh, only half joked, uh, all good work is done yes. in defiance <laughs> of management. But that doesn't mean break the rules or the law. That means go out there and use uh, your opportunities in this this sense of uh, running room, we, the best editors always know, they don't know what's going on, that the reporters who are right, out in saying, the field. Go to the scene. Yes, always go to the scene. And uh, so, so um, after, uh, you know, Watergate, Nixon resigned, um, Mrs. Graham, who was a, both a towering figure at the Washington Post and also in your own life, wrote you and Carl a letter yes. that you 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 talk about it probably once a month. Yeah, uh, once a month. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, no, I hope not once uh -huh. a month. Uh, uh -huh. Certainly not to you. <laughs> uh, you've heard me tell this story. But what, what was uh -huh. interesting about Catherine Graham is she had a lot of insecurity, but she uh, would she was a truth teller. And I remember once many years after Watergate, before the 
letter, I was on television, one of Meet the Press or something is, you know, one of these talking heads. And uh, afterwards, I'm at the post in the office and she called and said, I saw you on television. I said, oh, thank you, Mrs. Graham. She, she said, you were awful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she, she was she's rougher than I am sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and mm -hmm. she said, you're smirking mm -hmm. and you can't smirk. And it's it's true. So anyway, this letter she wrote, Carl and myself, after uh, Nixon resigned, and it was on a yellow legal pad, paper, one mm -hmm. sheet. Dear Carl and Bob, uh, now Nixon's resigned and you did some of the stories. Don't start thinking too highly of yourselves. And that's a jolt in itself. And then she said, let me give you some advice. And the advice is beware the demon pomposity. Beware the demon pomposity. Such good advice. Did it initially prick you a bit that she would think she needed to write you that letter? Well, no, I thought she's right about me, about Carl, about everyone in journalism. And we see it now in uh, it, it's it's so visible. It just slaps you in the face on cable news. Lots of people talking with certainty. This is the way it is. There's no alternative, uh, and uh, on on both sides. And uh, it does not serve. And this, of course, was the genius of Fred Hyatt. He had none of no no pomposity. No, I mean not not in his little finger was there pomposity, which is quite unusual for somebody in a position of um, issuing judgments. Yes, Daily. exactly. <laughs> Precisely. So what was the relationship between uh, Mrs. Graham? I always call her Mrs. Graham rather yeah. than Kay um, and, and Ben. And then your relationship with Ben. Who, yeah, well, I mean, Ben. Ben and, Bradley. Yeah, the editor and Catherine had a great relationship. And, you know, they both in their memoirs talk about it uh, endlessly. Uh, I had a relationship with Ben, but I mean, let me, you know, you, I, I just thought of this. When I was hired by the Post, it was the Metropolitan Editor and, you know, the personnel department that did the hiring. They said, you're hired, but you have to go through, there's one final test and you have to have an interview with Bradley. And he he doesn't say no, except in, you know, unusual cases. But this is so I'm, I'm, the post was on, on undergoing one of its endless renovations right. and had a little office like this. And I remember it was dark, except there was a light on the table. And I went in and he said, oh, you were in the Navy. And I said, yes, we talked for 20 minutes about the Navy because his time in World War II in the Navy, as he has said many times, was one of the most important times of his life to be in the Pacific in combat and to be this young naval officer who has is dealing uh, in a survival world. But I also think he said it was the most fun he ever yeah. had, that sort of sense of camaraderie. So yeah, you didn't I think talk ben, about ben always had fun. I don't not be suspicious of the idea uh, that something was the, the most, most fun. fun. Uh, I think, uh, but what he was, he was a, a prowler in the newsroom. You remember, yes. he would go, he would see uh, two people, three people at the water cooler and he'd be over there and say, what's going on? What's happening? He'd come by my desk, your desk. And, you know, what do you hear? What do you see? And, and you know, it's, it's what like- What made him different as an editor, as a leader? We well, you know, he had that self-confidence. He had that, 
curiosity, suspicion, no one pu pushed him around, no one at all. And I remember once having a, uh, editing a story that a reporter had about uh, the Democratic nominee for against Reagan in 1984, this was Walter Mondale. Uh -huh. And it was a very questionable transaction of Mondale getting $100,000 from some business. And I remember going asking Ben about it. And he said, and I said, Ben, we got to cover. He said, yeah, okay, cover. And then the story was done. And I went in and said, you got to put it on the front page. And, you, you know, it was just, he was not partisan, but he knew that uh, there was a political contest going on, and he wanted to be careful. And you know, and he put it on the front page. He understood the obligation to make those calls, and uh, that uh, was, you know, something clearly to admire. So that relationship with um, Ben and his wife, Sally Quinn, for the two of us is probably the most important relationship in our lives outside of our, our families. And um, just before Ben died, Sally called us to come down and see Ben. And do you remember that day? Well, do you, we went up we to went his bed. He was in, in bed. bedroom. And you tell. You and, tell. Um, he was lying there in bed with Sally. He had been sort of um, in and out all day long, but was no longer speaking. And Sally was there just very tenderly stroking his head. And she, he had on that great, you know, French sailor sweater that he often wore, blue and white. And Sally said, you know, Ben, Bob and Elsa are here. And Ben said, kind of, rose up in the bed and said, oh, Bob Woodward is here. And a smile came across his face. And I think both you and I just um, were so. And that was the last time, time encounter he had, he had with, with anybody. Yeah. Yes. And so, but, we, you know, yeah. he was, look, he was always for the story. Yes. And he knew that uh, we you know, shared a suspicion about politicians mm -hmm. and uh, the, you know, Carl Bernstein's wife, Nora Ephron, once said, all rumors are true, which is not the case, but many rumors are true. Right. And Ben right. knew that. Right. He and loved to he, gossip. <laughs> yeah, he loved to gossip. And uh, so he provided an energy uh to the Washington Post, and uh, it was uh, was defining for the institution. So um, when we talked about Deep Throat, Mark felt um, it reminded me of, um, as I said, a pattern that I've seen. We've done, we've 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 had a relationship for forty years. We've been married for thirty-two years. Um, you've written eighteen books while. We've had our, our marriage. And you were the, I mean, it, it should be said, and I, I say it in the acknowledgments, uh, I think sometimes people, well, you know, he loves his wife, but uh, uh, indeed I do, but you're a great editor. And Bob, Robert Costa found that uh, because he was, uh, he benefited and was subjected to your editing. <laughs> and you're tough. You're tough as an editor. And you edited, commented, read. How tough and nice. Yeah, tough and nice. And, and, and we never really had a fight no. about any of the edits. And um, ultimately, I had to decide, yeah, okay, we're going to do this or not. Well, yeah. but... Um, but often, uh, I'd write 250 words, say, on a page and give it to you. It would be the opening of a chapter. You're particularly yes. tough and uh, inclined to revise the opening of a chapter. And I wish I had one to show people that you'd have 300 words 
of your edits and move this around. What is this? Check this. What? But all your material, all your words, just tightening and rhythm and questions, yeah. questions, questions. And presenting it uh, in a more reader friendly way. Huh. And uh, that is critical. I'm, I'm often living in the weeds and uh, you will. I think one time you wrote, you know, get out of the effing weeds here. <laughs> well, but I was, um, thank you for those nice compliments. But what I was um, trying to get to the point was that with um, Mark Felt and that relationship you had with him is, um, it's not a unique one in terms of your work that in fact, we were just talking about this the other day with some friends that the uh, invisible thread that runs through all your books are what we call these forever sources. These people who you met when you were oftentimes young, when they were young, and have you've kept in contact, you call them. Um, we see this most recently with uh, Colin Powell, who uh, when he died, you had those um, tapes of an interview you had done with him a couple of months so before for, he died. Uh, for your book peril on uh, on your last book and in the description of, of 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 that you know very tender conversation very um it, you mentioned that that was your 50th interview with Powell, 50 yes, interviews yeah. and that's not that's not unusual uh, uh, that that's right, and uh, what uh, you know again, Powell was unique. He he understood the media, and he understood you had to open things up as much as possible. Uh, he, uh, I first met him uh, on the phone when I called about uh, the Panama invasion under Bush senior in 1990, 1991, and then the, the Gulf War. He was a national security advisor then? Well, no, he was chairman of the oh, Joint okay. Chiefs then, and uh, mm -hmm. he'd been national security advisor for Ronald Reagan. And what was um, interesting about Powell, I did all, I mean, now I, I did all these interviews with him for uh, the the book the commanders particularly about the Gulf War and I heard he was writing his memoirs I shouldn't this is a story I maybe shouldn't tell but oh, it's but, do. <laughs> okay well and um, I'd done all these interviews and they were typed up notes that I would dictate after talking to him we had regular calls on Saturday morning yes I remember. Every we have a house out near uh, Annapolis, and that was what we did Saturday, Saturday morning. But you did Saturday morning. Yes, right. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And um, and he was incredibly forthright. And so I'd write these up. Maybe there were twenty-seven of them from the commanders. And I called him up and said, "I'd like to come by." I have a Christmas present for you. And Christmas present. Very suspicious. Went to his office and I made copies of all the notes. And there were one or two tape transcripts. And I said, I, I understand you're writing your memoir and I wanted you to have these. They're your words. And he did, he looked and he, of course, realized that I was putting him on notice that I had these. I wasn't going to use it or break, but, and um, to his credit, when he wrote his memoir, uh, he said uh, that I had called him the reluctant warrior, and uh, he had one word response, guilty, yes. <laughs> guilty. And uh, so, uh, you know, this summer I called him for peril just to kind of see if he'd been in touch with anybody. And he was just always in touch with lots of people. But we talked. Uh, it, it was. It was wistful. Yeah. And it was kind of, uh, you know, how are you doing? And, uh, and he said, well, I've got cancer. I've got this and that. 
And, uh, you know, I didn't know that. It wasn't public. And I hadn't heard. And I I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he just, he said, we put out the tape of this. And he said, don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great yes. life. And then he talked about the first Gulf War in a way that was so striking because George Bush Sr. in 1990 said, how much force do you need there? And said 500,000, which is sending a huge know, amount. Ah, I mean, unheard of. And, and Bush did it. Casualties were initially 136. And so when we're talking this summer, I reminded him of that and being the reluctant warrior and demanding or requesting 500,000 troops and airmen and Navy personnel and Marines. Uh, and he said, yes, uh, 136. And he said, I was so proud of that. I could not see straight. Only 136 died. Yeah. Yes. And um, and so, you know, here he had that sense as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, later secretary of state, had the sense, particularly as a military man, his obligation was to the troops. And if he can say we're going to send 500,000 and overwhelm Saddam Hussein in the Republican Guard, which he did, uh, we, as he said famously, you know, we have all these Republican Guard work and he wasn't soft. He said, you know what we do? We kill it. Yep. And and uh, that's exactly what he did. But who, you know, who do you work for? Who is, who is your real constituency? And he understood it was the troops the people who are in combat, the people who are putting their life on the line. He'd served in Vietnam. He knew all of that. And uh, that was uh, really, really important. I think, you know, I work um, on the floor above here, and but we not too far. We both keep our doors open as we work. And every once in a while, I would hear some uproarious laughter coming out of your office and, you know, some of the times it would be Colin Powell because he had that great sense of humor or he had a very good friend who would call who'd say, I need to feed the beast. Yes, that's right. <laughs> About Powell or, uh, you know, I, it's, tell me something I can tell him. But you, you have to be really careful. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, again, is the lesson that comes from looking at the career of so many people at the Post, particularly Bradley. He was friends with John F. Kennedy when he was president. And uh, a lot of people felt he crossed the line with Kennedy and maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Uh, he probably did, let's say it, he realized that, he wrote a book about it. So Ben's message was keep your distance, keep your distance, let him know. And there've been lots of cases, as you know, were people I got to know and they became friends of the family. Right. And then uh, when it came time to publish the articles or the book, uh, there would, you know, that unpleasant call. As you know, I'm a reporter right. and you this is in the, in, the, in the book and um, some friendships were lost they because were. of that. And uh, that's, you know, so you, you're, I mean, you know this, most of the friends we have are, maybe all of them are your friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's not Good, quite true. No, no, because I'm, because I'm isolated and, um, and t I mean, you know this, I would come up and I'd be working after dinner and making calls, right. chasing people out down at night and um, it, do it doesn't leave your head when there are unanswered questions and there are no, always, I'm always after you finish a big book or a big project I always know it because you're sort of 
roaming around. You're looking in my closets to see what needs to be cleaned out. And I say, you stay in your own closet, clean your own side. Don't come into mine. Yeah. That you're always sort of, you're, you're kind of like a racehorse after a race. Uh, yeah. That's fair. And, but, um, so, you know, what, here we are. Um, but going back to that sort of idea, the forever sources, even this most last summer when Brent Scowcroft, who was also an old national security advisor, died, we were, um, it was the weekend, and you had put a big, big pile, a folder of interviews on my footstool. And you said, you might want to take a look at this. And these were all these old interviews with Brent Scowcroft. And I went, oh, <laughs> it's Saturday. I don't want to do that. But you knew that it would tempt me. So you didn't take them away. So I was sitting there reading my book. And then I pulled open the folder and I started reading. And again, it was this kind of history of American foreign policy of the last, what, 20, 30, 40, 40 50 years. years. I mean, and he was... Uh, Deputy National Security Advisor for Nixon, and uh, and Kissinger was the National Security Advisor, and uh, Scowcroft was such. Uh, he he was a renegade in his own way. I didn't realize that until later. I'd go do interviews with him, and that's quite a file. That is uh, quite a file. There is the, there is a wonderful the, small book in that for you or somebody just of kind of an American statesman. Well, and he was um, he understood presidents in a way few of the national security advisors did. I remember at one point he's telling me this. He's deputy national security advisor Kissinger was on a vacation in Acapulco. And so Nixon called Scowcroft one night, and this is after the bombing in Vietnam had been halted. And Nixon said, call the Pentagon, restart the bombing. You know, okay, Mr. President, yes, Mr. President. Well, what'd you do? He said, I did nothing. I did not, I said, I mean, here he's ordering you to start the bombing, he's the commander in chief. He has that authority, you don't have that authority. And, and Scowcroft said, I knew he really didn't mean it. <laughs> now, but there are lots of stories like that yeah. of uh, cabinet officers, aides for presidents who have to interpret, filter, and in the end, protect their president from doing something crazy. Well, I think one of the um, one of the other threads that runs through your books is uh, an intense focus on national security and the military, and um, almost all of the military people that you've written about recently. You always had that sort of coming to Jesus moment in your books. You had, you know, you talk about Colin Powell and being really proud of that only having 136 died. And then with General Mattis, who was um, President Trump's uh, Secretary of Defense, you have this wonderful moment, moments in, in your second uh, Trump book about him coming to grips with what he might have to do because there was so much bellicose language between Trump and the North Korean um, president about, you know- Leader, fire. Kim Jong-un fire and fury yeah. and describe sort of what um, Mattis is uh, sort of that moral. Well, in the book, mm -hmm. I mean, Mattis is sec deaf or Trump uh, had to confront the moment. Maybe Kim Jong-un would launch a, a missile or a nuclear weapon or what might appear to be a nuclear weapon at the United States. And there may be in the darkest moment would have to be retaliation. And so Mattis literally went to the National Cathedral to pray and go through what he understood his obligation to be. And when we were writing the book, I don't know, you, you Do remember, yes, uh -huh. that um, you and I and Two assistants went up to the National right. Cathedral. Again, go to the scene. Right. There's a, a, a deep sense of 
religion and quiet in most churches, particularly the National Cathedral. And so we're walking around and you, you smell it and you feel it and Mattis go back walk. to that little chapel where's the chapel the naval chapel was it yeah I, f I forget what the name of it is but it was uh, and um so what you learn of course that these this being secretary of defense being president is not paint by numbers that you you're facing the choices i've done the books and the post is always running uh, excerpts from the books. Uh, the the book uh, peril that Robert Costa and I did. They ran an article as it started out, and some follow-on articles and so forth. So uh, it's it's part of the journalistic tradition, and uh, quite frankly. Uh, it is a gift to me from the Washington Post editors to say, yes, we're going to do this. We're not, you know, we're going to let you be. So you, you um, over the years, you've gone, you've maintained your relationship with the Washington Post um, 50 years and um, uh, have primarily written books, but you always do jump back in when there's a, a big story or you have something, not just an excerpt from a book, 9-11. Um, yes, the, uh, the terrorist attack. So you were working on a book about Bush's tax cut, right? Yes, at that right, time? right. And even I realized that that was not much <laughs> yes. of, of a book or story on 9-11. And on that day of 9-11, you, you had left the house and you'd gone up to the hill to interview, I think it was Olympia Snow, Senator from Maine, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, yeah. Uh, about the tax cut yes. and we're sitting there in her office and there's a little and you can see the towers collapse and her chief of, and we're talking about tax cut I felt way uh, and I was, <laughs> out of it and, and I was trying to call you frantically to get off of the off of the hill because I was seeing it on tv and it said you know there might be a plane heading towards the towards the Capitol and you yeah. always turn your phone off all the time and it was yeah. I was so annoyed <laughs> yeah yeah well rightly so yeah. and um, but uh, you know this, uh, there's there's a interesting theory of the case of uh, in journalism I remember the great novelist British novelist Graham Greene always uh, said don't despise your enemies uh, don't detest the other side because they always have a case and you need to understand that case. So that leads us, I, I realize we're running, we only have about five minutes, yes. five minutes left. So that's a sort of a very good segue into what has essentially dominated your life, my life for the last five years, President Trump. Um, and how did, how did that happen? How did you start? getting interested in in Trump. Well, you could uh, you had to be interested in, <laughs> in, in Trump if you were a journalist that was alive. But it was Robert Costa in 2016. Now Trump is running for president the first time. He, he's on the verge of getting the nomination and uh, I'm in the newsroom and Costa came up to me and said we should go interview Donald Trump. And uh, Costa, of course, like now and then, he knew everyone. I mean, he, I, th I think he met Trump, you know, many, many years ago. Uh, he, I mean, you've sat and listened. To, yes, to he's the, got fantastic early stories. I always say that um, Bob Costa is the real Maggie Haberman. <laughs> okay, the, everyone will <laughs> like that except Maggie Haberman. <laughs> uh, but that, that's true. Uh -huh. And he said we should go talk to Trump and uh, I think he's, and this is Costa talking, uh, obviously going to be the Republican nominee. The conventional wisdom was he was going to lose and Hillary Clinton would win. And uh, Costa said, let's go talk to him about 
what you've written about in your books, which is what presidents do, how they mm -hmm. exercise their power. So we set up the interview. We go to Trump, uh, Trump Hotel, and it was just uh, being renovated. It had a big conference table. Yes, with, I remember you telling me. <laughs> and and you know the workmen had just finished, and I'd interviewed Trump back in 1987 with Carl Bernstein at at uh, the insistence of Carl, we've got to go talk to Donald Trump. I said, why? He's a business. He said, we've got to go talk to him. And so we did. And it was interesting, though we lost the tape and have not been able to find it. And uh, so Trump brings up this time when we walk, go in there and uh, just, I mean, real quickly, we talked about what presidents do. and. Uh, Trump at at one point uh, said, uh, talk, we talked about power and presidential power. What's real power? And Trump said, real power is fear, which gave me the title of my first Trump book. And then he said, as Costa and I are going through everything, you know, about Trump and, and Trump said, you know, I bring out rage. In people. I remember you coming back and telling me about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and there uh, was the second title. We got the third title, uh, Peril, from Joe Biden. It's from his inaugural address. This, uh, I mean, believe it or not, it's it was January 20th of this year. And Biden said, talked about a winter of peril. So we're about to wrap up now. And I just wanted to ask you one final question. Sorry we didn't do more about Trump, but I feel like you've been doing a lot of Trump. For, yeah. So um, sure. what's the sort of the, the big story you still want to chase? What's your, your Ahab? What's the white whale? About Trump? Nope, any story. Any, any story oh, about oh that. boy, there, there's so many uh, white whales. Uh, the Supreme Court did a book with Scott Armstrong about the court and a lot of people have said, including you. Yes, I love that book. Go back to doing the Supreme Court. Uh, that's always a possibility. And the, the, I remember running into Justice Scalia once said, why do you write about presidents that's all funny. the time? And I said, because that's where the power is. And Scalia, in his ungenerous way, said, no, no, no. Uh, what's Article one of the Constitution. And I said, the legislature. And he said, see? And I said, but that's not the way it works. The presidents have the power. Thanks, Bob, very Thank much. You. So we had fun. So that concludes our discussion here, um, at least for, for you. He and I will continue it for a very long time. If you'd like to see what other interviews are coming up at Washington Post Live, you can go to their website, WashingtonPostLive.com. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.